Okay, so thank you all for coming today. Uh, this is the first seminar of our 2021 series called Born to Bump, which is going to be a podcast series where we bump out the barriers to women's health care and also discuss about some recent breakthroughs in neonatology and maternal health. So we're very excited for Mira to be here with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Mira... Mira Mufarij is a Stanford graduate student in bioengineering, and she very recently invented a blood test that can predict preterm birth and preeclampsia up to two months before labor. And she recently won the 2021 Curate Limelson MIT Student Prize. So congratulations for that, um, for inventions related to prenatal and maternal health, which is an incredible accomplishment. We're so honored to have Mira Mufarij here with us today. Thanks so much, Catherine and Tiffany. Um, I'm really excited to be here. So um, before we start to ask you some questions, I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about like your research and invention. Of course. Um, so uh, in graduate school, I've been working on different prenatal blood tests. So taking a blood sample from a mom and trying to predict pregnancy related risks uh, ahead, of, ahead of time. So one of them is a blood test that you can use in the second or third term of pregnancy to predict due date or how long uh, have the duration of gestation. The idea there being that most uh, checkups in obstetrics and gynecology relate to how far along a pregnancy is. And without that knowledge, then you wouldn't be able to see if the baby and the mom are doing well. Um, the second blood test is one to predict risk of preterm birth. Preterm birth, as you guys are all very familiar, is when a mom spontaneously delivers ahead of time. And uh, typically that means that the baby is not ready to, um, is not equipped with all the tools to survive outside the womb. So with neonatal intensive care units, there have been great improvements in neonatal outcomes. However, there are still uh, long-term health risks to the baby and the mom after delivering early. So this test would give a two-month warning um, so that uh, both mom and baby can prepare. And the last one is to predict risk of preeclampsia, which is a condition of high blood pressure and organ damage that typically starts uh, in the third term of pregnancy, but the test would be able to predict risk of preeclampsia in the first term of pregnancy, giving moms and babies, or moms and doctors, time to prepare. And in the case of preeclampsia, if one can predict risk prior to 16 weeks gestation, then doctors can prescribe uh, low-dose aspirin, which has been shown to reduce one's risk of preterm preeclampsia. So yeah. Thank you so much for that um, overview. Uh, we have a few, we received a lot of uh, amazing questions from our chapter directors here with us today. And uh, the first question is gonna be from our Georgia chapter director, Aditya. Hello, uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I would like to ask, can you talk about your journey from doing cancer research to focusing on premature pregnancies? Uh, of course, Aditya. So I guess to back up a little bit, when I was in high school, I did not know that one could do research as a career. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. And um, in my first year of undergrad, I uh, happened upon cancer research because of a uh, colleague who was working in a certain lab and there was another opening for an undergraduate and I joined in the lab. Uh, I did not realize how good of a fit it was yet, but when I joined, what I learned is that 
you can do, you can combine computational and experimental skills to model cancer in that, in that lab specifically. And so in high school, I thought that science and math were a little bit like you kind of followed rules and you came to a certain solution. I think the reality is that research is a lot more like solving a puzzle or solving a mystery. So you aren't, um, there isn't a, uh, an answer that you know ahead of time, you're trying to figure it out along the way. And in, case of, in the case of this cancer research, uh, the idea was that you can model single cancer cells and how they interact with one another, and then use that to understand drug resistance. So for example, why when we give someone a cancer treatment, is there recurrence later on? And uh, how can we figure out whether or not recurrence is likely to occur? And what does that have to do with how cells talk to one another and how cells interact with their environment and how we can actually model a lot of this through math. Um, and in my mind, math was like two plus two equals four, but really here you can do equations of motion. You can think about how different proteins interact with one another, different cells, different tissues. And so that was my start there. And I got really excited about that and realized I could do it. Um, I could continue to explore that. And uh, for me, cancer research at the time was near and dear and still is near and dear to my heart because my grandma passed away from pancreatic cancer. And in her case, the, they just they found it too late, as is often the case with pancreatic cancer. They thought she had gallstones. She went in for surgery and it turned out to be metastatic pancreatic cancer. And the that was my first data point into that diagnostics could be useful. An early predictor of something can allow one to intervene in a way that doctors wouldn't be able to do otherwise in grad school. Um, so I came to Stanford, I was looking at labs. I knew I wanted computational and experimental skills and I was interested in women's health, but preterm birth wasn't necessarily something that I knew a lot about. And the lab I ended up joining um, works on the topic. And what I learned was that for women's health in particular, the tools we have are, are pretty limited. Um, doctors who we work with the March of Dimes Center, and there's this collaboration of doctors and scientists at Stanford that work together. And one of the doctors put it as, if, you're as, if you as a mom are at high risk for preterm birth, meaning you or your mom or your sister have had a previous preterm birth, that puts you at a 50-50 chance for every pregnancy for delivering preterm. So basically a coin flip. Um, the doctors are still guessing whether or not for this specific pregnancy, one the mom will deliver preterm. And that means that they can't prepare. That means that the mom can't prepare. If you imagine hospitals in rural areas without neonatal intensive care units, it becomes a lot harder to um, have the mom next to the resources that one would need. And so this surprised me. And the uh, it seemed like a tool problem. It seemed like one where diagnostics could make a big impact. And so um, the question that we wanted to answer here was how do you monitor pregnancy-related complications and can you have early warning signs? Now, how one goes about doing that um, is another story and it involves like finding the correct data source so that there is something that'll tell you information about a clinical, about a pregnancy, having the right tools. So can you measure this data source? And um, then a lot of statistics and discovery work, but that was the crux of it. I started in cancer research um, more because that was, it just so happened to be where I started, but I, I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed the computational and experimental work and in grad school continued that. But in uh, another problem that I think needs a lot more research than we currently have on it. Um, Thank you so much. If, sorry. Um, I was wondering if you could talk uh, 
talk about how long it took you to develop this method and if there were any obstacles that you had to overcome while doing so? Yeah, um, plenty of obstacles, always. <laughs> but I've personally been working on this project for about four years. So uh, these three prenatal blood tests to predict pregnancy complications, I started with working on the ones to predict preterm birth and uh, due date. Uh, but I would say the work as a whole has been going on for many years. Uh, science builds on itself. And so this work is the culmination of the work of many scientists, doctors, and engineers. Uh, if we zoom out, it, it was in 1948, these two French doctors discovered that you can measure RNA and DNA in blood. Now there was also a world war going on and they didn't have any tools to measure that beyond like, we found it, it's here. So that laid dormant for a long time. And then in the 90s, people were thinking about how do you monitor a pregnancy without um, taking a sample from the amnion? So that's when there's this very large needle and you put it into a pregnant mother's belly and take out some amniotic fluid and do what's called a karyotype to look at whether or not the baby has um, Down syndrome or, or the other trisomies. Uh, it carries a small risk of miscarriage. And so people were thinking about other tools one can use. And so um, in this case, they went back to the RNA and DNA that's in blood. We had better tools to measure it. And over time, started chipping away at that problem. So first it was, okay, we have RNA and DNA, then we have tools. Then there was questions about like, well, does this RNA and DNA tell us anything? It turns out that the RNA and the DNA in blood plasma comes from the mom and the baby. So the placenta gives RNA, the mom gives RNA, and so does the baby. And uh, in like the 2010s, people figured out that RNA is changing dynamically over the course of pregnancy. So as the placenta grows, so too can you measure RNA from the placenta going up over the course of pregnancy. And once the mom delivers, it goes back down to zero. But there is still this question of, is it clinically useful? And that's been my project for the past four years. So we know we can measure it. We can measure it robustly. We can measure it in many people. And then trying to correlate that with... Um, like the pregnancy-related complications on a population level is a pretty tricky problem. If we think about people, we're all different. RNA levels can be different. You're starting with like 7,000 molecules and you're trying to find a set of molecules that across a large pop set of the population will be predictive of something like preeclampsia or preterm birth. And uh, obstacles, so that those are like broader obstacles about just like tools that are out there. But in my own life, like I, I think... When I first started in research, I thought that it was hard because I didn't know anything. But the secret of working in research is that when you're working at the edge of what you know and what you don't know, for example, here we did not know necessarily that these RNA molecules can predict any pregnancy-related complications. Um, there's a lot of like failures, but I would say that there are things that you learn from. So the secret is that nobody knows it all. We're all learning along the way and you're trying to answer the question given an imperfect data set and an imperfect, like you'll never know it all. You'll never have like an answer key at the back of the book. And so how can what you convince yourself that something, the signal you're seeing is real as opposed to being an artifact of the method you're using, as opposed to being that you don't have a large enough data set, among other things. Um, and uh, there's also the obstacles of working at an intersection of two spaces. So the work I do requires both bioengineering skills and computational skills. And sometimes I would feel like I didn't have enough of either. And so uh, there, there's also like, I would, I'd feel stuck and I'd feel like it wasn't going to move forward. And 
asking for help or just sometimes like taking a step back and coming back to it the next day or, you know, things, these things like it's the, the feeling of when it works out is awesome, but the process is often chipping away day after day at small problems that make up this larger one. And um, I think that it's an awesome process that excites me, but it's also one that in every day there are small little things that can go wrong. So I try to remember like things I've learned that day, things I'm grateful for that day, even in the low moments where um, it doesn't exactly look like it's all going to come together. There's even a period of when this analysis is going on that I call data sulking, which is when you look at your computer and you're like, oh God, this is not looking like what I think it's going to do. And you just like have to take a step back sometimes, come back the next day with a fresh, with fresh eyes. Sometimes you notice what's wrong. Sometimes it takes a bit longer, but yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and then um, a question just came up um, in the chat and it's what, and it's coming from Veronica, what, undergraduate experience did you find most beneficial for your research? Um, Veronica, I would say like take classes and things that you, that scare you or that there are things that you don't feel necessarily uh, comfortable in or that you have the background in. I think the biggest thing I learned from undergrad is how to learn and how to, uh, how to be okay with that. I don't know. I won't know everything. I just need to be confident in my ability to learn. Um, and so at the start I would take classes and I would think like, I did not know how to code when I came into undergrad and I went to a school where a large number of the students knew how to code. And I thought like, oh, well, shoot, I don't know how to code coming in. Well, that's the say goodbye to coding. That's not going to be part of my uh, life. And that's just, that's not, that's not true. I took a coding class and like, you can learn, you can figure out that stuff. It's okay if somebody else happens to know something before you that does not precludes you from learning it and you can learn from them and learn from other people and don't be afraid to ask questions like um I learned the most from this electrical engineering class I took where I was not an electrical engineer I came in the first day and we sat down and they're like we're going to build a circuit and I was like I don't know how to build a circuit <laughs> and uh, I ended up building the circuit and like learning a lot about it and asking questions and I think that's the most important thing to be curious to like sign up for the things that excite you even if you don't have the background the point of school is to learn and if you already knew it all then maybe like you know to, like then it's it's not as worth it and so don't be afraid to jump into things and just think like you're going to learn along the way like you may not know it all you may have to come in and ask questions and don't be afraid to ask for help too but be confident in your ability to learn because there's always going to be more to learn than stuff you already know Hello there, this is Jayla from New York region. Thanks. Um, as I was reading like the summary of your research, I was wondering what are the chances of the test results being false considering testing is done during the first trimester when a large quantity of women do not know that they're pregnant and maybe undergoing stressful situations already? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a great point. Um, I think so in... The work so far, what we've tried to do is we have what's called a discovery data set. So a data set where you find these molecules that may be correlated with certain pregnancy outcomes. And then you have what's called a test data set, which was not used during the discovery of the molecules. Um, It wasn't touched at all. And so what we try to see is what the properties of the test look like in this separate test data set. And currently, what we found is that the um, sensitivity, so 
uh, one statistical property that tells you if, um, like, if how, how many of the, the cases where a mom did have preterm birth did one catch? Um, so how, and then specificity, which is like how many cases that when a mom did not have preterm birth did you say that she did? Um, and the properties look good is the summary. However, you touched on an excellent point, which is that these, everything needs to be validated in a broad population with moms with uh, diverse risk factors of diverse ethnicities and races. So when we're putting a test out in a broad population, then we have to consider um, whether the moms are high risk or low risk for these pregnancy complications to begin with, how this test, um, if, if any has a correlation with race and ethnicity and how that influences the results. And then make sure that all of these things are checked out in preclinical validation before putting a test on the market. Some examples of tests that do exist where the preclinical validation um, influenced the way it's used today is, for example, a mammogram. So mammograms are recommended for moms over or women over 60 years old. The idea being then you're at a high risk factor to develop breast cancer. And so the background of whether the test will give you an incorrect result ends up being um, justified to do the test every year. But if you were to do the test every year in a broad population, so moms, or moms, I keep saying moms because we're talking about pregnancy, women <laughs> younger than 60 years old, um, then the you might end up with too many false positives and to giving, mom, uh, giving women uh, like making them anxious over a false positive uh, when the test just, the statistics just aren't right in that population. So a large part of preclinical validation is figuring, making sure that as it as the test exists currently, or perhaps with some modifications that the results are accurate and as expected, and we're not uh, making moms anxious if they don't need to be, and we're not missing moms that are at high risk for one of these conditions and saying they don't need to worry. Hello, thank you so much for being here today. I'm Rasagna, and the question that I would like to ask you is what inspired you to find ways to prevent preeclampsia pre and preterm birth? Thanks, Rasagna. Um, I would say I touched on this a little bit, but um, a, lot of, a lot of it came from looking at the tools we have today and then thinking about how um, diagnostics can change that. So if you think about so for pregnancy-related complications, um, ma, uh, women of color are at higher risk for these complications, and often they are uh, ignored when they come into the clinic complaining of the symptoms. So for example, for preeclampsia, early signs and symptoms include having headache and nausea, which the mom herself can write off as, oh, this isn't a big deal. This is just general pregnancy discomfort, but also when going into the clinic, there's well-documented cases of um, not receiving the care that they need. And so what I think of as diagnostics is providing objective evidence for otherwise things that we can, can be considered subjective. So something subjective is I have a headache, you should check this out. Something objective is this test says that I'm at risk for preeclampsia, we need to monitor this long-term. And so thinking of diagnostics as tools that can improve an imperfect healthcare system is something that I feel strongly about and I think um, is uh, exciting. And of course, like we touched on before, we have to 
validate the properties of the test before it goes into the clinic. So that's one side of it. The other is that um, as I've been working on this, whenever I present about my research, I think something that has touched me is that moms or women who have had children before share with me their own experiences with pregnancy-related complications. And I think there's a there's discussions in the cancer world about like every everyone you know knows someone who's had cancer. I think the same is true for pregnancy-related complications. We just don't talk about it. Miscarriages are fairly frequent. I think it's like a third to a quarter of women experience a miscarriage. Um, and these pregnancy-related complications similarly touch a large part of the population. Like one in 10 mothers experience preterm birth and one in 20 experience preeclampsia. So um, the, the fact that these occur so frequently, but the discussion around pregnancy is still something where, you know, it just, uh, it happens, a mom gets pregnant, a mom has a baby and the stuff in between, the, the amazingness of growing a baby from one cell to all these cells to the way the mom's body responds the pregnancy related complications that can occur those aren't part of the discussion and they need to be and we need to have tools to be able to um, better observe and monitor pregnancy and alert when things go wrong so that we don't have to do emergency medical care there can be non-emergency intervention early on and we can empower these mothers to take their healthcare into their own hands. Could you expand a little bit more on like what the non-emergency healthcare would be? Like, I know, cause like when the babies come out preterm, a lot of it's kind of just like trying to help them sustain. But if you find it out so early, would you be able to keep them in longer or like what are the kind of stuff that you can do? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great question, Christy. Uh, so in the case of preeclampsia, you can uh, administer low-dose aspirin that reduces a mom's risk of ever developing preeclampsia, specifically preterm preeclampsia. In the case of preterm birth, uh, doctors can give moms a steroid shot that encourages lung development in the baby so that the baby can survive outside the room. There are also some drugs that in some cases extend the length of pregnancy. So if uh, the mom is just at the edge of, you know, a certain number of weeks gestation where the baby may not be able to survive outside the room, oftentimes those extra weeks are really important to ensure the baby develops to a point where it can survive outside the womb. Uh, but you've also touched on a point, which is that we, we don't understand preterm birth and preeclampsia to the extent where there are drugs that work for the majority of mothers and that we can administer. And so another thing about identifying biomarkers that are related to the conditions in humans is they can provide um, hypotheses about why moms develop these conditions and then perhaps that can lead to treatments. But that would need further research. So, yeah.
So um, you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about how pregnancy complications are so common yet so understudied. So I was wondering, in your opinion, why do you think it's such an like, understudied or under-researched area, given that every human life begins this way? Yeah. Um, I would say part of it is it's hard to study. Uh, so if we think about the tools that scientists have to study pregnancy, um, oftentimes it's model organisms. So looking at a pregnancy in a mouse or in a different animal. And then in those cases, there's the question of, is the thing that we're studying exactly replicated in an animal model? So for preeclampsia, for example, it's relatively unique to humans as a condition. And so it's very difficult to study something in humans, except if you have a non-invasive sampling method. So for example, taking blood from a mom, then you could see that over the course of pregnancy, or we wait until the mom delivers and then the placenta is also delivered and we can look at the placenta at full term. But all of these are snapshots at different points in time of what is a dynamic process. So um, a lot of what we knew about these pregnancy conditions were from placentas that were delivered after the mom had delivered. So very well-developed placentas when we believe that the, the these conditions uh, occur or like start far earlier in pregnancy. And so Part of it is just like, it's hard to study. It's hard to get the samples that would allow us to study this well. And the other thing is I think it's important to, to consider who gets to ask scientific questions and uh, direct research programs. And uh, until more recently, uh, obstetrics and gynecology departments were mostly men and not very diverse. And so one of the considerations there is that if everybody thinks the same way and uses the same tools, then oftentimes the answers we'll get are the same. And so this is both diversity of thought and then diversity in the more classic sense. So diversity of thought is that if a field is very closed off and only people who are insiders get to work in that field, then oftentimes everybody's thinking the same way. And it's an outsider who has a different perspective or a different toolkit they can apply that um, is able to crack something. And so examples of that in that my own work is like a lot of the work we do is directly with clinicians and the interface there helps uh, both sides understand like what is possible from a technical perspective and what is needed from a clinical perspective but without that dialogue oftentimes scientists will be like oh this is really cool let me go try this and then you go and you publish it which is the thing to do in science and a doctor will read it and be like I I didn't need this I needed Z but here we are years later and we published A Um, and so having that dialogue early is important having people with different perspectives is really important and I think we're beginning to get at uh, changing who gets to ask questions and who thinks about what is an important question to ask and how one answers it but yeah, all that together. But it's hard to study. Research is directed by people and people's perspectives, and we've got to have diversity of perspective there. And kind of going off of that, so how do you feel like this invention or kind of just being in your field has encouraged you to, um, or like how has it affected your identity as a scientist and then especially being a woman um, mm-hmm. in STEM? Like how has that all affected you? Yeah, Um I'd say overall, I've really enjoyed being in science and learning, but certainly there are its moments. Um, I think seeing myself as a scientist has evolved over time. I I liken this to like when you start doing a sport. So for example, when you start running, like 
technically maybe you're running every day and training for a half marathon, but do you consider yourself a runner? Like uh, oftentimes in conversation when I was first running, some someone would be like, oh, I'm a runner. And then they'd ask them, do you run? And I'd say like, yeah, I run, but I'm not a runner. And that was just like an identity shift in my mind. And so I think uh, winning this award, for example, was great in validation that I am an inventor and a scientist, but it didn't necessarily register in my brain before. Like if somebody else called me a scientist, I'd be like, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a PhD student. Now, if you think about what I do every day, I do science. But did I call myself a scientist? No, because somehow in my mind, these were two different things. And so I think I, I guess that that connection wasn't there yet, although it's an important one to call yourself um, what you are and be proud of that. Uh, I And I am proud of who I am. I just like some, it would be intimidating to walk into a room where you felt like everybody else knew more than you. And oftentimes they may be older than you. And so I would feel like I am never going to know enough. And at first that makes me really nervous. And now it makes me excited because it means you're breaking new ground. It means you're working on something where what we know and what we don't know, we're straddling that line. And so that first means that myself and everybody else in the room are about on the same level. If we're on the line of what we know and what we don't know, we about all know the same thing, some stuff, but not everything. And so it gets me excited to be there. Um, and I feel like I should, if they're confident in their ability to learn, then I should be confident in my ability to learn. And you should too. And then like, you can go from there. So I, I would say all in all, this invention has uh, helped solidify my identity, but it was there all along. I just hadn't really thought about it in that way. And it's also helped me focus on the broader context of work that um, I do and how much I've learned, but also how much there is to learn and how excited I am to keep doing that. And hopefully y'all will work on it too and or whatever you do work on. And that's, yeah, that excites me a lot too. Kind of expanding on what you said, um, like I know there's like uh, a lack of like women in STEM and I was wondering if you were ever affected by that or had any experience um, mm -hmm similar to that and how it affected you? Yeah. I, uh, when I started in research, my first mentor, uh, Shannon Hughes, was this awesome senior scientist in the lab who uh, like taught me how to pipette, which is one of the basic techniques to do some of this science. And I'd never done that before and taught me how you think about science. And I think she, uh, she, she made me feel confident in asking questions when I didn't know very much and allowing me to make mistakes and grow. And I think that's really important, having those uh, scientific mentors who teach you techniques. And I think on a personal level, my family has always been super supportive and I've leaned on them in moments where I haven't been necessarily confident in my ability to do something or I'm thinking like, maybe this is a mistake. And so um, I think like being confident in who you are and remembering where you come from and leaning on the support sources you've had throughout your life is really important in those hard moments because there will there will be hard moments it's not science is uh oftentimes there's your hypothesis and then there's like trying to see if it works and those two things don't necessarily always work out in a one-to-one -one fashion and so um I would say like leaning on the people who know you and know who you are and knowing who you knowing who you are, but leaning on them to help remind you. Because there will be moments where uh, either you'll question it internally or there may be other people who will say things that make you feel not so great. And so 
but remember that people, everybody is approaching something from their own vantage point and whatever insecurities that comes with. And so I've also learned not to take things so personally. So if somebody shares an opinion with me that I feel um, doesn't necessarily bode with my own, I sometimes, first, I allow myself to feel whatever emotion is there. If I'm upset, I'm upset. Then I try to take a step back and consider like, is there something to this that I need to explore more? Um, are they trying to tell me something and like maybe my own blinders are on and I don't see it? Or is it just that like they have a difference of opinion and I lean on the sources that like the people who know me really well, like my parents or my siblings or my partner. And I ask them like, how do you feel about this? And if they don't think that it's a thing, then I let it go. And I'm like, I'm going to just keep doing me. Um, what are your future plans with this invention and maternal health in general? Yeah. Um, so Kimberly, the invention itself was patented and then the technology was licensed to a startup that's working on preclinical validation. And the hope is that if preclinical validation um, shows that the test works as we expect, then it should be available in the coming years. And then personally, uh, I am a fifth-year PhD now. A PhD typically takes around five years, so it depends. And I'm going to graduate this fall. And then I'm hoping to keep working on... Um, the women's health space, whether that be in diagnostics or in therapeutics and human health in general. And I'm excited to keep working on that and see what other tools we can build or what other uh, yeah, things we can push for. Yeah, and going off of that, I was wondering if you could describe what kind of like unique challenges and things you learned um, because you're an inventor and you had to go through the patenting and licensing process, which is a little bit I know different than the general research portion. Yeah, of course, Kylie. Um, I would say that uh, patents, so we went through the patent process with the university and something about the difference between patenting an idea and like the scientific paper is that patenting is more around what the idea is itself, whether it is non-obvious, so it wasn't immediately clear based on what existed before and whether or not um, something and whether or not there's prior art, which means did somebody else publish this or talk about it publicly before uh, you developed the idea? And so those two things, um, to me as a scientist, I was like, oh, well, um, you know, there has been work in this field before, so is it patentable? Is it not? And I think there was a distinction there where the nuance was like, Using cell-free RNA, which is the uh, molecules of RNA that we find in blood plasma on which this invention is based to predict pregnancy-related outcomes, that was non-obvious and not in the prior art, even if the idea in general of using molecules in blood to potentially predict a pregnancy complication did exist. And nobody had yet to prove out the first idea that using cell-free RNA um, was non-obvious and could be potentially useful. So it took me a while to figure that out. And then in terms of when thinking about a patent, there are things that can follow from the idea you have that are fairly clear. And those should also be patentable. Even if you haven't done all of the work experimentally to prove those out. So if it immediately follows that if you can do X, you can do Y, then that's part of the patent. Even if it's not necessarily part of a paper that you publish scientifically because the scientific publication has to be like, we did X, Y, and Z in person proof. Um, and so there was that difference that I have to learn about. I guess those are the key differences I'm thinking of in the process things I learned are like the importance of uh, uh, 
having a lawyer who speaks the legalese that is required for <laughs> writing a patent on the lighter side and working with them. Um, and the nuances between what is patentable and what is scientifically something you write about. And then the last bit is that you, I think oftentimes people don't patent things or think about it as an invention because to them it's obvious, like they've been working on it for a long time. So they're like, oh, it doesn't need to be patented. Somebody else must have thought of this. And having confidence in yourself and taking a step back and trying to think of like, okay, in the bigger picture, actually, did somebody else think of this? Is it patentable? Maybe I should file a patent on it. And remembering that that exists is pretty important just because just like I didn't think of myself as a scientist, I didn't think of myself as an inventor. And I don't think I would have patented any of this had it not been for my advisor who had been in this space for a while and knew what was patentable and what, and what was not to be like, oh yeah, let's patent this. And then I felt like this is patentable oh, okay, like, yeah, let's go along with the process and see what it's about. And so both remembering that even if something's obvious to you, maybe it's not obvious in general, and you should consider that and um, think of yourself as an inventor. And if you're working on uh, a space of what you know and what you don't know, and the second part is once you're in the patent space, remembering that there's a difference between doing research and patenting an idea and um, making sure you don't sell yourself short there too. Um, I was curious, uh, this is more like a vague question, but earlier you said that like discoveries are always kind of founded on previous research. Mm -hmm. So for you, what would you hope that either you or someone else would be able to discover or do with your research? Yeah, thanks Sarah. So I guess like I see the stuff we've done is just the start. So we have shown that so far with the research that we've done that there are these RNA molecules in blood that they're predictive of pregnancy-related complications, but where these molecules come from is a nuanced question that people are currently working on. So what tissue in the body? Is it mom or baby that's contributing these specific RNA molecules? Um, even more than a tissue, what cell type in the body? So in a specific tissue, for example, the liver, there are different cell types that make it up. And so maybe it's one of them and we can figure that out. So that's one side that I would hope like on like immediate next steps, but also that on a more broad level, the tools here can be built on and hopefully like superseded with tools that do a better job and people can take inspiration from them and build different tools, maybe with different information sources, maybe with the same one, but looking at it in a creative new way. And so that, and also that sometimes it takes looking at a problem in a slightly different way to come to a solution. Here, a lot of people were working on looking at RNA and blood was not necessarily something that a lot of people were thinking about, even though it existed and it's been reported since 1948. And so sometimes like approaching something and taking a step back about like, what is the key question we're trying to solve? So here it was, what are tools that we can build to better monitor our pregnancy? And then surveying the total landscape instead of Sometimes when you come at a problem, you've already come at it with the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So you jump in with that before taking a step back and looking at it in a bigger picture. Um, I just had a more general question. I was wondering if you kind of touched on this earlier, but I was wondering if you had any future advice that you would give to people who are interested specifically in maternal and child infant health. Yeah. So definitely what I mentioned earlier, that don't be afraid of what you don't know and be confident in your ability to learn. That's like my top tip if you're going into research. The other things about maternal and fetal health, I would say like you can start doing research at an undergrad level and working with uh, doctors or scientists that work on this field. And so 
don't be afraid to email someone if you're interested in their work. Um, their professors usually, they got into being a professor because they're excited to teach and mentor. And so feel free to email someone and ask, like, hey, I saw you do interesting work. Can you talk? I'm interested in helping out and learning from it that way. Um, also, like y'all have done emailing people you'd like to talk to and figuring stuff out there, I would say is, an, is a great skill, like just reaching out and asking for help or learning more. And the last thing would be like challenging yourself to have a combination of skills. So a lot of these problems, I would say, sit at the intersection of computational and experimental skills. And what I mean, like you don't necessarily have to learn how to code, but there are problems where like the placenta could be modeled with mechanical engineering, for instance. So you could combine mechanical engineering with the knowledge of the biology of the placenta. Or there are problems where it's like a question of chemicals are interacting and uh, what molecules are there. And so maybe some chemical engineering could be useful there. And so thinking about both like the problems that excite you and then the tools that'll help you answer that problem and what tools you're excited in exploring and also going and getting those skills if that's something that's exciting to you and not being afraid to explore further than just the immediate question that ended. Um, I had an additional question actually. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of read up on you and I heard that you got a master's degree in computer science. I guess I was wondering like how you were able to find that intersection between computer science and the work you do now. Yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> um, so in my first year, At Stanford, you have to take classes to fulfill the requirements for a PhD. And one of the classes that I happened upon was this deep neural networks class, and it was advertised as anybody can take it. So I signed up. In retrospect, I should have had more computer science experience than I did at the time, but I learned a lot in the class and enjoyed what I learned. And what that taught me was like, it showed, I I worked on a project in that class where I tried to combine biological data with the skills that I had learned and uh, I felt like I needed to keep building that, but I also needed more of a base in the, like I was working at a, building these neural networks is like a higher layer, but it would be definitely helpful to have those lower layers so I can think about it more, more systematically. And so uh, you have to get a master's in the Stanford program at the very least along the way to the PhD. So I applied for the master's in computer science. And um, my thinking was I would take all these applied courses that would immediately relate the biology research I was doing to relate to that work and I'd be able to apply it directly. I also had to take a bunch of foundational courses, but they turned out to be super useful. And I learned why, like, uh, I was thinking like, oh, you don't, I, I know this kind of, but like knowing it kind of, and knowing it in the way that it's taught in school are totally different things. It's like learning a language by like living in a place and like knowing how to form a sentence versus like, this is why you form a sentence in this way. And for coding specifically, what that allows you to do is instead of like moving around in the dark, trying to figure out how to write something uh, to to perform a certain function, you learn about like thinking of it from the most abstract level, writing an outline and then writing your essay of code or wherever it is in a structured way where all of the parts fit together and they're modular. And so I benefited a lot from the master's in computer science and learning those foundational skills and then I learned new methods that I could apply to my research to explore different questions. You don't know what you don't know. And what this master's helped me do is like explore those different areas. I also, like even in the things that I already had an inkling I could do with my research, I was able to do them better because I had practiced how to write code to analyze these large sets of data that I work with. And 
I really enjoyed it. And I don't think I would have signed up for it had I not done some of those classes in undergrad where I didn't know anything, but I learned a lot. Similarly here, I thought like, well, I don't know everything about computer science, but I'll learn. And I think that that has been something that oftentimes the times I've learned the most are the times when I've walked in and I've been like, oh, I probably don't have the background for this, but I'm trying to use. <laughs> That's a really good attitude. Thank you again for, for being here with us today and for sharing your personal journey of creating this amazing invention. Uh, does anyone have any additional questions for Mira before we let her go? And if not, Mira, is there anything else you would like to share with us today? Just thank you so much for having me. And I'm really excited to see what y'all all get up to. I'm sure it'll be incredible things and that uh, I will, I'm looking forward to yeah, getting to know you more and reading about what you do in the future. And don't hesitate to reach out if you have questions. Tiffany has my email and I'm sure she's happy to share it with all of y'all. Yeah, of course. I'll share your email with all of them. Thank you so much for this like wonderful opportunity like, to hear more from you and for being our also our like inaugural speaker. Um, Thank you. Like women like you in STEM making like big changes in the world, especially in like women's healthcare and neonatology. Thanks so much, Tiffany. Thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it for all your great questions. And so we hope you all enjoyed listening and participating in this seminar with us today. We look forward to seeing you all again in our uh, next episode.